0: Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created emergingmanagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org global investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O. Dot org slash global dash investor. The Matimico team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegis. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegus has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So If you're tired of high-cost and time-consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at Tegas.co forward slash valuehive. That's Tegas.co forward slash valuehive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment. And it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research. And I know you'll love it as much as I do. All right, Rory, we're obviously bringing you on the podcast today because oil is the new oil. At least that's (laughs) the way it seems. And the bet that people are making is that this, you know, transitory inflationary trend in in oil prices and this rise in oil and energy stocks is going to last longer than people think. Profits are going to be higher than people think. Um, and I wanted to get to the source of all of this, which is the commodity space and understanding the supply demand uh, mechanisms of the space, understanding, you know, productions, inventories, all of that from first principles um and you know you are one of the um you know, kind of leaders in the space at least you know the person i follow on twitter that produces a lot of great content so um who are you and how did you wind up covering the oil and gas space
1: well so i started actually at so my first job out of grad school was working at, as an international economist at scotia bank in toronto where i'm based um and after a very short time doing that, I ended up transitioning into the commodity role. And I always had an interest in commodities going in, uh, but I was kind of hired in the you know, international space. So I was very excited when I got to transition, and I ended up covering and, and managing the bank's um, kind of commodity economic research. So I did that for about six years. And then I left at the beginning of 2020 to join a family office, um, not knowing full well that the pandemic was just about to bear down on us. We were, uh, my wife and I were having our first child. I was traveling a lot at that stage. So I wanted to kind of a slightly different change of pace. Also, very frankly, commodities and oil in particular were a slog for the decade prior to COVID. And mm-hmm. virtually everyone I saw, I mean, the bank continued to kind of clamp down and wind down com- you know, commodity centric businesses. I saw a lot of the people that I had historically worked with kind of transitioning out of this space. And then, very frankly, it kind of seemed like the writing was on the wall. And I think we'll kind of chat more about how that sentiment and that kind of echo, I think, is still reverberating in the market today. Um, But, you know, regardless, I left and I had actually kind of planned to kind of transition away from kind of rote commodities and and even oil and kind of focus broader equities and macro stuff. So, you know, uh, pandemic hit. Uh, We had a lot of time on our hands because we took most of our strategy offline at that stage, just kind of saying what the heck was happening. Um, So at the same time, as I was doing less and less active work, um, my phone kept ringing off the hook with media, Uh, my old media contacts when I was at Scotia and they were like, you know, what the heck is happening? Why is oil price, where are oil prices negative? You know, is this like literally the end of the industry? And I just, I was shocked that there weren't more people kind of filling that kind of commentary space, very frankly, publicly, particularly in Canada, which is like a very oil centric country at the end of the Mm -hmm. day. And I think very frankly, that reflects that decade of winnowing that we had seen was that everyone that that knew anything about oil either didn't talk to media or had left the space, very frankly, at least up here. Um, So, you know, that was my opportunity. So I just kind of kept, I kept talking to media and I kept doing research because I didn't want to sound like an idiot to media. And then I was like, why don't I start writing this down? And then I started writing it down. And then I was like, why don't I publish this? So then June of 2021, I started publishing commodity context on Substack. Initially as like a proof of concept, like will people read this? And then people read it. So I was like, okay, will people pay for it? People are paying for it. So this is now my full-time, my whole full-time gig. I've transferred entirely to doing commodity context as my kind of, as my, my job. Um, and it's been really, really exciting. So I've been really, I mean, I've been blessed. I think I had a a moment in time where I got kind of right place, right time, right. General vibe of, of focus. Um, and that's what brings me to this space. So I come, you know, most of the people in the space that are still around are really heavily equity focused, like, like they come, like they're long only equity managers or they're kind of, their interest is in the investable side of the space. I come from it very much from a bank econ perspective, which, you know, is less investable, but I think like I really do lean on that idea of like commodity context. Like my goal is there's so much misinformation and kind of narrative in this space that I see I see a huge opportunity just to kind of dispel myths and kind of like set people straight. So like I think that currently I'm planning on doing more forecasting in the future, but right now my focus is just like, where are we actually standing today? Like based mm-hmm. on all the information we have today, what can we actually say about this market? Because the, like versus the decade prior to COVID when I was like starting in this industry, you know, things are changing wildly. And I kind of say like last year, like normally we would debate 500,000 barrels a day. Like for, for people's perspective that aren't familiar with the sector, as a random rule of thumb at this stage, you can kind of say like roughly a hundred million barrels is the market today. hundred million barrels supplied and demanded. Um, it, it obviously fluctuates, and that's the whole point. But as a proportion, that's what we're talking about. So, like, we were talking about five hundred thousand. Like, that was like that. Those were big numbers, and, that, and people have big debates about this kind of stuff. Now, in you know twenty twenty, we were talking like millions and millions of barrels of day across multiple different um, kind of line items in these global supply demand ma- balance models, from laggard shale in the U.S. to uh, Russia's invasion and the subsequent sanctions, and then Chinese COVID zero. These are massive, massive shifts, and I think that it allows people, very frankly, to latch on whatever narrative they want. Because right mm. now, you have such a wide range of possible, acceptable, and very, frankly, reasonable forecasts that you can really plug together whatever forecast you want, and you can make it sound pretty reasonable. So I think, as we're going to talk about, I can see a situation where we do end up deeply undersupplied and prices, you know, moon. Um, but I think that I, I can as easily see to a situation where we kind of muddle through and have kind of much more meager pricing and I think you know, as, as we'll talk about a little bit later that like I think the number one mistake people make in this sector is overconfidence like mm. the the oil market is designed to humble you maybe not I mean as, as we said maybe not quite as acutely as the natural gas market but oil I think has, has a very very long history of like uh confounding consensus expectations and I believe that it will continue to do so that is, for me that's the only kind of truism in the in this space
0: <laughs> the natural gas market, just for anybody that wants to look at how crazy prices can go. I I don't know. And I, I, I commented on this on Twitter. I don't know how anyone makes any money trading natural gas. I don't know. Like everything, like you, you buy a breakout, it gaps down nine, 10%. You try to short, it gaps up. It is. I mean, they call it the widow maker for a reason.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and again, I mean, like I, I tweeted a chart yesterday about like, I think, so beginning of December or end of November, we were talking like $7, $8 gas. You know, yesterday, uh, by the end of trading, we were we were flirting with like a two handle. So like we were we were sub $3 million BTU gas, which is actually like that would be low even prior to COVID in these latest kind of breakouts. Uh, but like particularly low given the fact that we were like multiple times this past year flirting with 10 bucks a million BTU in North America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then obviously while North American gas has been crazy, like global and European gas has been an entirely different ballgame of like just absolutely historic, you know, mooning and then collapse of these prices. And I think that, you know, say, say what you will about like, like the traders, like I couldn't do it. That's absolutely wild. But like the effect it's having on the global economy is and, like particularly regional economies is quite dire. And And this volatility, I think, you know, as we as we progress towards this future uh, of this hopeful energy transition, you know, I, I expect this volatility will only get worse and worse and worse and worse because you mm-hmm. have less and less kind of tender care, if you will, for the space. And we're, we're expecting in many ways more and more from it. Uh, we expect it to be cleaner. We expect it to be more efficient. We expect it to be more available at all times. And I think all of this together, like I think those expectations are going to be kind of confounded constantly because that's what this market does. If you don't, treat it with a lot of respect, it's going to bite you.
0: Well, you brought up a good point too, where there's so, you know, there's so many embedded expectations or maybe not even even embedded, but there's this, you know, transition to clean energy. And all of this effort is put on these current energy sources. You know, you guys have to clean up, you have to do these things to make your plants greener. You have to do all this and all that. But meanwhile, there's no money going into the space. To help with any of the transitions so you're stuck between a rock and hard place we're like okay like i get the energy transition but you know capex is so low no supplies coming online nobody wants to build these things it takes years to build new you know clean in air quotes um you know like oil refineries or natural gas you know production facilities so it's i mean you're almost asking for the impossible at that point
1: absolutely and i initially came to this space not Frankly, via econ. My background is actually not economics. My background is more global affairs and security policy. So mm-hmm. I came with an energy security focus initially to the space. I like to say, like, I, I learned economics on the job working in an econ department. And I like to say, like, I played an economist on TV. Um, but I think that, like, my background, like, first and foremost was policy analyst, security analyst. Like, kind of, I came to it initially with this idea of energy security. And I think what we've seen was, like, that decade prior to COVID again, I think, like, I'll keep talking and referring to that, like, many cases like a, the lost decade um and i think during that period of exuberant overabundance and oversupply of these materials and these commodities people just kind of forgot about the security element people stopped talking about energy security but all of a sudden like last year energy security was you know top of the agenda again you see like even progressive governments around the world you know the liberal government here in ottawa um you know they they're talking about energy security again they're talking about the role that Canada as 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 a, as a as an example here can like play in allies energy security kind of securing the global energy supply and that's language and rhetoric that we just frankly haven't seen for the better part of a decade and i think that is one of the things that has changed um is, is kind of a, a renewal of that cuz that was that was what everyone talked about when i first entered the space you know when i first entered the space you know 2011 2012 people were talking about like you know like by by like 2013 14 like ISIS was taking over swaths of uh, Iraq uh, and into Syria, and they were taking Mosul, and people were worried about, like, them getting as far as, like, the the southeastern oil fields in Iraq, and, like, people were talking about, like, oh, my gosh, we're, like, we need, we have, like, huge security problems, and then literally fast forward six months from June 2014, and prices were in free fall, and eventually kind of culminated falling from, 110 120 bucks WTI back down to $26 WTI by Feb 26 uh, by, uh, by Feb uh, 2016. So like all that together like these are again I, one thing I will we'll return to is like how frequently consensus shifts and I think it's it's wild in this space because people people believe something so fervently and then it just disappears and then we people move on to the next kind of consensus view and I think that happens you know, I was, you know, even in preparation for this podcast, I was just thinking about this question and like, you know, there's probably like a half dozen in the past 10 years, moments that the consensus has materially shifted in what the expectation is going to be. So I think, you know, when we talk about things like the futures curve or everything else, like when people expect the market to show them the future in any tangible way, they're fooling themselves. No one knows. I think that's the important thing here. This is a massively complex market, the largest commodity market by a landslide, trillions and trillions of dollars traded annually like this is this is the big one right i think like nothing else no other commodity market compares in scale and scope to the oil market and you know with something that big and you have like even like small changes in small countries can materially distort global balances like right now one of the largest sources of global incremental supply growth is Guyana in south Af- in in south america um One of the the smallest, poorest countries in the hemisphere up until recently produced zero oil Mm -hmm. and in the next couple of years will become the largest per capita producer on the planet. And like these are. So they have they've had massive discoveries. I wrote a piece on on it on commodity context a month and a half ago or so. Um, But they have this massive, massive offshore discovery. They're right beside Venezuela. And they actually in some ways share some of that kind of geology. But no one had really explored. And now Exxon and Hess are the two major kind of members of, the cons- of this consortium. Um, and they've had absolutely gangbuster success. Quite frankly, you know, I wrote in the piece, it's by by many metrics, the most successful offshore exploration program in history. Hmm. You know, they're they're going from zero to upwards of like a million barrels a day in like oh, five years goodness. with multiple projects. And I think the the cycle for for this kind of investment is accelerating rapidly. Historically, it would take way more time to scope and and build out uh, offshore, in particular. But now there there's these new technologies that people are really adapting. You know, writ large with these you know basically floating offshore. They call them FPSOs, um, floating production supply and offloading vessels. Um, and uh, they basically connect to subsurface rather than building these big mon- monstrous kind of offshore uh, yeah. platforms. They just make them much more flexible and much more kind of incremental and modular, and I think this is this whole name of the game. It's made it faster. It's made it cheaper, and I think that side evolved through the necessity of like I remember back again in the in the lost decade, you know, doing risk reports for a credit committee at Scotia about the offshore sector, and it looked doomed. You know, yeah. costs were wildly expensive. Like the like the classic examples here were things like. You know, they would they would fly custom bolts out at like the, the cost of like twenty thousand dollars a bolt. Now it's like now now they wait like, like now things move a little slower. But in the process, actually, things are moving faster because everything is everything is standardized and everything is so kind of regimented now in comparison to like the custom bespoke. You know, price is no option attitude mm-hmm. of producers back in like the 2010s, early 2010s in particular, when prices seemed high, everyone was thinking prices were going to keep going higher so the name of the game was volume at all costs now mm-hmm. people now it's like you know volume matters but really profitable barrels matter above all else and i think that's also been a massive shift in the in the industry
0: yeah there's there's so much to unpack and i i actually kind of want to hone in on 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 this Guayana development because i think i think it'll help explain a lot of the concepts for people that may not know the oil and gas space or maybe this is their first time and again like i saw I think it was Mayhem for Markets yesterday tweeted the top 10 industries by relative strength to start the year and it's like literally oil and gas energy services natural gas coal financials and it's you know so you're going to have a lot of eyeballs on the space and I think what people are seeing is you know if you read anything going back to like you said the lost decade you know call it 20 you know 2010 ish 2014 ish where there was just so much supply flooded into the market at these high prices, right at the moment when the prices rolled over and crashed. And, and so, um, you know, investors are thinking, is this going to be exactly the same or have management teams actually learned that, you know, Hey, maybe we should actually focus on the supply side and make sure that we're, you know, selling and our, and, 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 and we're supplying at profitable levels, but going back to Guayana. You mentioned it's kind of all it's it's near Venezuela, you know, Venezuela and this country kind of share um, some some seawater. How do they determine like, you know, hey, this is ours or like how 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 is Venezuela not like, oh, you know, this is on our side, actually, like this is our oil. So actually, they are so, so they actually there's actually a major ongoing border dispute yeah. um, with
1: with Venezuela that has been a major source of concern. Kind of historically, people are a little less concerned about it now, like there's enough interest. And I think what you've seen very strategically is the Guyanese government has actually partnered very explicitly with like U.S. and Chinese companies largely. And I think it's not lost on everyone that like this is at least in part kind of a geopolitical hedge against interference from Caracas. Um, but I think like when you, when you look at the, so they share a border, um, essentially, if you look at Venezuela's claim, like these, like these borders are established by international convention and kind of all these rules for how you establish kind of territorial waters. When you look at Venezuela's claim, and I actually have a map in the, in my post about this. And it basically like, they, they claim like 85% of Guyana's territorial (laughs) waters. And shockingly, all of the sections of the water that have proven oil in them. So like, it's a major concern. So I think, you know, this is one of these things in this in this sector. And one of the things I love about and I I came from kind of more of a global affairs geopolitics background. So that was the my initial kind of way I came into this industry. But what's fascinating is like, every like, this industry has a bit of something for everyone. Like, I remember early days, like I had to learn a bunch of finance and accounting that I had, frankly, no, no idea about beforehand. And even more than that, I, I took like a class in organic chemistry to better understand, like, how hydrocarbons work and like what the heck are we actually talking about when we're talking about these different hydrocarbons and cracking you know hydrocarbon chains and refining so I just wanted to like understand that I feel like it's like there's a little bit of every you know it's it's the definition of multidisciplinary like there's a bit of everything for everyone which is why you have such divergent opinions and personalities in this space like the I was like to say, like the classic example of like an analyst in this space historically was, an engineer, so someone that kind of started in the space, either a petroleum engineer explicitly or a chemical engineer, then they go get an MBA. And that's actually like, there's a shocking number of people in this industry on operational as well as kind of strategy side that have that pedigree. But I think think it speaks quite well of the sector that someone like myself, who does not have anywhere at all that background, kind of can come in and have a different perspective and that I think, thankfully, people find interesting. Um, And I think it's like, So I think, you know, whatever background you come from, like there, there is something for everyone in oil.
0: And when you go, well, that's, that's a good point because this space can be so intimidating. Like when you, when you go in and you, and you, and you read Daniel report, um, there's so many terms that you just don't know. And again, it's one of those things where if you take kind of the Peter Lynch approach, you know, buy what you own, buy what you use, like. The only interaction that a lot of people have to the oil and gas space is maybe like their propane tank for their grill yep. or filling up their cars. And then yeah. they see the prices, you know, rise and fall, but that's it. So there's no like, oh, I kind of, you know, I understand this. I use it, blah, blah, blah. Like I understand the supply dynamics. I understand the customer value prop. It's a totally different ball game that can really get you. You know feeling like you're drinking out of a fire hose which you know the point of this podcast is to is to kind of turn the nozzle back a little bit to to digest it all
1: yeah and I, and that's what's funny i think what you you hit the nail on the head like 80 percent of it is terminology very frankly like i think um you know because it is quite a technical sector and there's a lot going on and you do need jargon you know unfortunately so otherwise you like explain like paragraphs for everything you're describing so like, like jargon does come in handy obviously But at the same time, like, it's not actually that hard to learn, particularly if you kind of, you know, know where to look. And so I think terminology is the first thing just dispel that. But like you were saying, like, at the same time, it's hugely complicated. Most people do not understand almost anything about the oil sector. But at the same time, it's actually the commodity that people in some ways are actually the most aware of, because no other commodity has literal signs with the prices up wherever you're driving and you're doing mm-hmm. it multiple times a week like like you'll buy like uh, in the states right now there's a massive egg crisis right yes but like people will talk about it but like no there, there aren't like egg prices up by the side of the highway at least it, i haven't seen it recently maybe there are me. none <laughs>
0: there are
1: none <laughs> i think that's like so like everyone has an opinion so like it's that's what's funny about oil is like it's it's deeply misunderstood but virtually everyone has an opinion and mm-hmm. that's true of like lay people generally but i think also like true of like other people in the markets like every macro guy or or every macro person has um has a view on oil equity people have a view on the commodity but they spend all their time on equities so i think there's all of this like which is why i think again there's so much fascinating debate in this space is like everyone feels that they can kind of lean in with a little bit of a take um and i think some of it like some of that's really really useful because i think like when you have the same group of people kind of talking back and forth all the time Like you get group thinky, you get like like the kind of imagination ossifies a little bit. So I think it's it's handy. Like I think like while on some level, like the endless kind of, you know, overconfident reply guys on Twitter are deeply annoying. But on the flip side, like one in a hundred, you're like, oh, that's actually a really interesting kind of like slanted take. I don't agree with your conclusion. But like it'll inspire like a post to look at. Like I'm like well, that's a really interesting. That even if it's misunderstood, it's a really interesting misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really valuable. I think again, uh, I benefit from the fact that everyone is kind of interested in oil because it is. It's fascinating.
0: <laughs> well, the other the other interesting part about oil and um, you know, like you 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 spent so much time reading in markets over the last two years about like you know these high tech growth companies that you know are really just basically satisfying our higher you know uh you know mas maslovian needs basically um where we've got everything we've got our necessities so really what we need is just a faster web browser and a better email interface which one can argue isn't necessarily highest tech but i in kind of preparation for this and I'm, I'm, i'm i'm spending the next three months diving into this into this space i printed out like an 84 page oil and gas industry primer that was like a technical breakdown had the charts of all the rigs with you know the derrick the donkey rigs onshore (laughs) offshore tons of stuff i didn't know but when i finished reading i just kind of sat back and i thought like oh my gosh like this stuff is incredibly high tech like this is in like what they're doing in the offshore and drilling underneath they've got these floating rigs they've got subsea you know scrubbers and diggers and then not even that even if you go onshore and you know you're looking at you know some some like just regular onshore oil rigs what they used to do is they would like send guns down into these wells and then shoot the guns into the concrete to create these little circle perforations to help with the flow of yep. oil back up the well and it's like that stuff to me like that's incredibly high tech
1: absolutely absolutely and i think the industry's always been high tech but i think particularly in the last couple decades, you've seen that explode in terms of, you know, like, and like, some of like the most advanced uses of machine learning and stuff are like, really advanced targeting of like payoff zones in these petroleum bearing plays. And I think what's interesting is like, historically, you would like drill down into a kind of a pool of oil. This is like the kind of old school like Saudi or like Be- Beverly Hillbillies kind of like gushers spindle, mm-hmm. you know, back in Texas's old days, etc. Like more and more now you're looking at like, again, you know sub subsea kind of infrastructure for these offshore production or like you were saying like the like the guns and the kind of perforations that's all the fracking right so like the combination of horizontal drilling paired with fracking opened up massive massive previously uneconomic um kind of uh kind of reserves and i think what's interesting here is like for people to understand like most oil virtually all oil actually forms in things like shale. So like, you know, it is sedimentary layers that actually causes oil to kind of form over millions and millions and millions of years, like old sea life and plankton and all that stuff that kind of, you know, gets compressed and, and turned into hydrocarbons. And then typically what happens is it leaks gradually, geologically, naturally out of those reserves into those pools and then gets trapped under something like a, like a tap rock or, or or kind of like a, like a cap rock. Um, and I think, what you're doing now is instead of trying to wait around for it to like conveniently gather itself in these kind of formations now you're actually going to like the source rock itself and actually Mm -hmm. extracting it so you're kind of accelerating millions of years of geology is what fracking is essentially doing and in some ways the oil sands are similar up in Canada like you know the the oil has been commingled with sand and clay and the goal is basically to take it and refine all of the bitumen and the oil out of the clay and these are massive massive facilities like things that I think this is what often actually alienates the sector to some degree with a lot of people. It's like it's so big; it actually seems otherworldly. Like it mm-hmm. seems kind of like a lunar project. If you look at the oil sands, or even even some like large refineries, or things like it looks very intimidating. But I think again, it is, it is. It, you know, these are like highly, highly, highly sophisticated, advanced. You know, uh, you know, sectors, and the people in these sectors are hugely, hugely well educated in this space. Um, and that's why you kind of continue like. People always talk about peak supply. You know, that was always the kind of worry historically. Like back when I got first got interested, in, I remember watching a documentary when I was in like late elementary school or early high school. And it was like, we're gonna run out of oil. We're basically, it's basically like the walking dead out there, or like mad max, and it's gonna yeah. be crazy. And you're like, okay, well, that makes sense because like oil is limited, kind of yeah. definitionally. And um, we kind of have this, like we we pump out more and more of it every year. So yeah, of course we're gonna eventually, you know, run out. But it's this massive kind of you know competitive race between declines in geology and increases in human ingenuity. So really, mm-hmm. if you're short oil supply, in some ways you're also actually like short human innovation. And that's why like I, I think one of the mistakes that people make is, is they they assume that like what we see right now is what will that's what's gonna happen. That 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 that's the way it's going to be forever. And high prices breed innovation. And bring on more supply. It's happened every single cycle for like 150 years. And we we've thought we're going to run out. Like you can go back and like there are a couple of books I'll, I'll, I'll mention later, but like, you know, that that go through these cycles of, of mania and hysteria. And like, you know, the oil industry has like almost died, quote unquote, like a dozen times. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a lot of times for like the biggest industry <laughs> in the world.
0: <laughs> Why do you think the oil industry? above kind of every other massive uh, market per se, why do you think that's had so many dances with death?
1: (laughs) I mean, I think it's, well, the volatility is in many cases unparalleled. And I think what you've seen historically is the only moments where you have a reasonably stable oil market is when the market's actually highly non-competitive. Like like when you lean into like a an oligopolistic system. So like historically, like when you look at like this is one of the things when people look at historical oil prices, there really aren't great historical oil prices in many cases because like for like if, you know there's actually a great book. So Bob McNally did a book called um, uh, Crude Crude Volatility, and they had a really interesting uh, long term history. Like he had a I think it was a weekly data set, uh, and he's the CEO of a company a consultancy called Rapidan and and DC. Really really great really really great analyst. Um, he kind of constructed the historical data set that went back you know, to the early like the late 1800s when the industry started. and you can see like massive bouts of volatility at the beginning, and then you know, you know, Rockefeller takes over the industry and settles things down. so like monopoly, like the initial kind of trust, right? like this this is you know the the guy that, that actually brought about antitrust regulation in many cases in the states and like a retaliation to what he was doing. So like you saw that, and that kind of busted, and then you had more volatility. but then eventually you had like this long You know, era of like what you call like the Seven Sisters era, where you had these massive oil companies, many of which you still recognize the names of today, like Exxon and Mobil and Chevron, et cetera, et cetera. um, Where the prices that you see historically, when you see like fifteen bucks a barrel or ten bucks a barrel for like this massive swath of time between like you know the '40s to like the you know early '70s, um, was really this moment of like this was an accounting gimmick in many ways like it was that you know they they sold they, they produced abroad and they sold to their own refineries and the price the posted price was essentially de facto agreed between them all and was used for internal accounting transfers wow and, and that was like why you when you during that period you saw really really stable oil prices because no one had an interest in volatility And it wasn't until you started to see you know opec push back and start to like bring out these you know initial embargoes and then eventually you had like spot markets emerge and like this is like the like the heyday of like early like Mark Rich and like the like the birth of commodity traders. That's when you started seeing real modern spot markets emerge. And eventually like the WTI as a as a price started in 1983. Like it's actually not that old in the yeah. scheme of the market. Um, And I think before that, like these prices were kind of like, you know, you know, Fugazi, right? Like it's like there's this, this you no, know, it's really like like that. That wasn't real pricing. Now it's a very, very different market. And you have spot markets, you have futures curves, you have this hugely developed system. And people are always complaining. Like you have, you know, you know, old hands in the market are complaining that now the market's too financialized, that you know, futures have too much of an influence on the physical market. Or on the flip side, I think historically you could very reasonably say, like, you know, physical traders had way too much opaque control over this market at all times. And now, in some ways, futures have like democratized a way of like expressing a view or having information about this market on a higher frequency basis. But I think like, again, this market is just, you know, you can tell the history of the world through this market. Um, and like, that is like, you know, more book suggestions, but, like my initial book that I read in this industry, you know, before going to grad school. And I think many an- oil analysts, like first book in this space is the prize by Dan Jurgen. It's like, okay. you know, we're referred to as like the Bible of, of this. And it kind of goes through this massive history from the founding of like initial like like the initial Drake well in Pennsylvania, kind of right up through to kind of I think the book you know probably ends in the you know mid '90s, and he's had subsequent books and stuff as well. But like you know this is like a broad swath of history, and you can tell you know really interesting stories about you know the world wars so through purely the lens of oil. And that's again that's that's initially how I came to it was what this idea of like energy security and Winston Churchill's decision to 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 change over the Royal Navy from coal from uh, Welsh coal to Iranian oil and you basically Mm. traded you know operational superiority of oil-powered ships may faster way more maneuverable etc but you had these massive extended supply chains that you then had to defend and I think that was how I initially came to it (laughs) yeah
0: and it's you mentioned the supply chains and I think now like basically what you said earlier where there's this huge focus on energy security and a lot of deglobalization happening and a lot of you know hey like we got to make sure that we take care of you know what we have whether it's defense energy food supply and so at the same time like you're seeing this deglobalization and now all these supply chains that everyone thought were you know normal and fine and humming along that were very intricate throughout the world are now starting to kind of break away And, um, it's, 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 it's creating some interesting dislocations, but I wanted to go back to something you said about peak supply. And, you know, basically if you're, or, you know, if you kind of believe the peak supply narrative, then you're also kind of short innovation. One of the big, um, sticking points for this oil and gas thesis, at least from the bulls is the supply. Like you've got right now, you can kind of pencil out a pretty stable supply base and you can make a reasonable guess that there's not going to be a ton of supply coming online however as technology increases and as the cost of bringing supply online maybe decreases over time like how how strong is that narrative if people keep innovating and the cost to try to find new oil or try to find new energy sources just you know kind of declines
1: yeah, so I think one thing I'll differentiate is also how wildly, ahistorically disruptive shale was in the industry. Hmm. And, and I think for some people, if that is their main kind of point of reference for like a supply rebound, it's highly abnormal. Like to put in perspective, like again, again this decade prior to COVID.
0: Well, so what is sh- shale first? Like yeah. let's we'll start there, right? Like what is oh. shale? How is it different?
1: exactly and i think and and shale it doesn't actually need to be shale i should say we really sure. what we're talking about are like you know tight t- light tight oil so they, okay. this is when we're talking about um you know us tight oil production and or tight gas production for that matter um this is going through to that source rock rather than kind of drilling vertically into a pool of oil you're drilling vertically and then horizontally through a um kind of a, a load, you know, like petroleum bearing rock. And that's when you're fracking and then you're bringing it up to the surface. There's a fascinating, um, like a really, really great graphic for this, uh, a photo of dessert actually that I saw years ago. And it basically, you know, old school oil drilling was like drilling down into a, into a jelly donut. So you drill down into the center and you suck the jelly out, right? Yep. Whereas, yep. Uh, you know, light toyed oil and, and horizontal drilling and fracking is much more like you're drilling into a load, you know, a creamy layer of tiramisu. And you, and you know how it's like it's like layered, and you kind of go down through, and you kind of go sideways, and you suck out all of that. But it's a very different process. And so when I talk about shale or the U.S. shale patch is kind of a catch-all. Really, what I'm referring to are these major basins. So you look at the Permian Basin in uh, West Texas and New Mexico. You look at you know the big ones: Permian, Bakken, and in in, uh, in North Dakota, which was I think in many cases the first big kind of boom in the in the shale uh, with Harold Hamm, um, and then down into uh, the Eagle Ford in kind of central and east Texas. There are more. There are like, There's like the Marcellus, which is mostly gas up in the northeast, et cetera. But I think, you know, really what we're talking about in shale now, it's most of the Permian Basin. Yeah, And Permian is like, the reason it is so important is those layers descend so, so, so deep. It's such a big kind of formation. There's so much potential and area for this kind of production. And that's why you've just seen massive, massive growth. And again, to put in perspective here, you know, at the around the peak, kind of like, you know, peak kind of shale growth. And this is, you know, even before this is even after the price crash. But like in 2018, when Brent was trading at around kind of like 60, 65 bucks a barrel, kind of like very middling prices, but not as bad as they were a couple of years earlier. U.S. shale was growing at something like, or or U.S. total liquids production was growing at something like 2 million barrels a day, um, which was about 500,000 barrels a day or more faster than global demand grew in that year. It was an insurmountable tidal wave of oil. In the decade prior to COVID, roughly two-thirds of every barrel of oil added in the world was added from the U.S. shale patch, which is Nothing has ever happened like that before. And I think that is the important thing. And when people are talking about like, I think when people think, uh, when people are like mega bearish in this phase, I think in some cases they expect a full reversion to that type of growth. And I think that is probably a misplaced concern at this stage. You would need a lot to change to re recapture that pace of growth because Really, I think for even the again that that decade part of COVID, we analysts, you know, were like breathless, like like blue in the face, saying this is unsustainable. They're not making enough money. They're going, you know, this isn't this isn't kind of this isn't can't persist indefinitely. But it kept going and kept going. It wasn't until COVID kind of had this sharp sudden stop to the industry that everyone used that as the moment to basically like, oh wait, maybe this didn't actually make any sense to begin with, and we all almost died. So, like, let's try and be a little more conservative here. So now, you know, and I think the other thing that's important to note here is U.S. will remain even at this dramatically slower rate of growth. And I would say growth is probably halved, um, or even even more. Like, I mean, it, last year, you know, growth with, or this year we're looking at growth of maybe shy of a million barrels a day, and that's total liquid. So that's crude and natural gas liquids, which we can talk the differentiation a little bit later. More, more fun chemistry. But I think, um, you know, and that's at prices. Twice as high as 2018 in many cases. Mm -hmm. So, you know, dramatically slower pace of growth, but will still be the largest source of growth in the world. Um, I think that's also hard for people to wrap their heads around because, like, oh, well, like, shale's done. Like, yeah, it's done, but it'll still grow faster than literally every country on the planet. (laughs) Um, I think so, like, beyond that, there's, and I think so, what you're looking at now, I think it's less likely that you see a massive renewed boom in US shale because i think beyond beyond this cost discipline and kind of investment discipline that's imposed by equity holders because again the other thing i didn't note for that decade that they were investing in growth overall, else they they roughly depending on the estimates you're looking at whether or not you're including privates and everything else you know between 300 and 500 billion dollars of investor capital was set on fire with zero return um so that's why the sector was a, was terrible from an equity return sp- perspective for so long. I think most investors in the space are still scarred by that. So their worry is now, like, don't return to that old pace of growth. You're making literally record profits right now. Don't stop what you're doing. Keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think beyond that, then you have, like, the oil field service sector. And you mentioned that it is another kind of top performer. Also... Has this same kind of psychology where, like in 2014, when prices collapsed, the main reason that you could see, you know, US based EMPs reduce their cost base so dramatically was more or less by like arm wrestling oil filled service companies into like massive discounts on their services. So, like, basically, you give it to us for like, you know, 50, 80% off, or we go out of business and then we both die. Um, so, like oilfield service companies had to bear a huge amount of this brunt.
0: Mm-hmm. so, in the
1: process, they cut investment. They cut back. They started cannibalizing all of their rigs and kind of pressure pumpers, et cetera, in order to kind of keep their their sector alive. So they haven't been investing. So you've had this so even if you do get a return of kind of desire for u s based EMPs to grow again, then you basically need this other cycle of a massive boom in oilfield service rates. Until they can finally get the signal to invest in their stuff, because right now we have massive bottlenecks. We don't have you know rigs and drilling rigs, probably mostly fine-ish. The bigger problem is what we call like the completion side. So basically to your point, the the gun side <laughs> essentially. Yeah. so when you you drill it and then you need to complete it. And that's the kind of horizontal drilling is stage one and then fracking is stage two. The bigger challenge right now on the fracking side, there's not enough pressure pumping capacity. Uh, and then you also have bottlenecks and steel pipe and labor, and you know frac sand that's used as those propants to hold those cracks in the rock open. So that all also basically needs this massive bull market and in, in pricing in order to incentivize them to invest again. So I think even if you do get a boom in a desire in u s EMPs to grow, I think first stage is massive oil field service inflation before you actually see a return to anywhere near the pace of possible growth that we saw historically which is why I think that U.S. shale will struggle to double its pace of growth to the pre-COVID level. Where you're likely to see more growth now is in countries like Guyana, countries like Brazil, countries, I think, frankly, like like incrementally in Canada, where you, you know, slower, you know, not millions of barrels a day each year, but a couple hundred thousand barrels a day across a bunch of countries. That I think is where we have a much more well-balanced and kind of diversified supply mix, hopefully, going forward here. Mm
0: -hmm. If you look at the, you know, we'll call it the value chain, right? Where you've got, you know, the drilling aspect fracking, then you've, you know, you mentioned the piping, the frack sands, all of the inputs that need to go in, you know, like the mud to, you know, slap onto the well, and then the completion process. Where is the kind of profit pinch point where you think the most value will be extracted from, you know, let's say the current supply-demand imbalance. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the bed is on these oil field, you know, services companies, like you said, where there's no supply coming online, day rates are going to have to inflect. And as long as day rates stay elevated and oil prices don't collapse, like they're going to make a ton of profits. But is there anywhere else along this value chain where you think outsized profits might be a consequence of kind of some of these bottlenecks?
1: So I think it, I think you need two steps, and I think you first you need a a true renewed. I think even at this kind of level of uh, activity in the patch right now, you probably will see some pricing power kind of gradually shift to the oil field service. But I don't think it's going to be like you know definitive and kind of gangbusters. I think that you need you would need a ma- you would need high oil prices and and a kind of a re-rating of kind of equity appetite E M P equity appetite and E M P investor. Um, appetite to grow again. And I think, so that's why I think even at this stage, I think if you are an oilfield service company right now and you were like thinking, you're licking your lips, you're like, mm, you know, back in June, $120 Brent, oh, this is looking good. Now they're going to invest and we're going to but like, thank goodness you probably didn't invest at that stage because yep. all of a sudden prices fell by almost 50%. <laughs> and then you kind of ended up back in this cycle of people talking about cost discipline again. So I think, you know, the volatility here does not help. Because because it, it makes you question the durability of any kind of rally, mm. and I and I think with good reason, uh, because this has proven to be like you know you know fleeting. So I do think you know. But to your to your question, what segments of the market I think are going to be most kind of primed in a kind of a bull market? I think very frankly, pressure pumping because we just need to invest in a huge amount more horsepower. And second is labor. I think that like. This sector has also, and I, I mean, we talked at the very beginning about how, like, in my decade, and I think that's both true on like the operational side, the production side, but also on the analyst side. I think the analyst space in this sector has been, you know, vacuumed out for a decade. I think you've seen, a, you have seen a like a like a groundswell of people re-entering the space. Yeah. But very frankly, a lot of them were not the same people from a decade ago. They're brand new, and their kind of cycle experience in many cases started in twenty twenty. Mm -hmm. Uh, which that's a very unique, like if you started in 2020, of course, you're an oil bull, like prices went from negative to $120 in two years. Like that doesn't happen in the industry. Typically like volatility is like the truism in the space, but that's something that's a level that's like historically unparalleled. And again, negative prices are historically unparalleled. (laughs) I think, um, you know, there's, I think it's going to take a while to like repopulate the sector. And I think the challenge here as well is like, all of this is happening. Under the kind of context and with the backdrop of energy transition and governments around the world trying to kind of reduce our dependence on fossil fuels because of obvious kind of emissions concerns, at the same time here, like so, you're, like everyone's saying we're going to consume less oil. All these, or you know, international forecasters are predicting you know plateau, like relatively early plateaus in demand and then fall off. Which for most people will like you look at that and think, okay, well the pricing is going to be crap then. Um, and I think, so, like, why would you enter the sector as, like, a new grad right now if, like, when I entered, very frankly, it was because it, that seemed like a great way to make money. You know, in, you know, mid-2010s, it would see, like, all of my friends, you know, at in undergrad that were, like, you know, in engineering, we're all going out west to Calgary and making like six figure salaries to start with their you know food and car paid for. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know I'm like a I'm like a political science graduate. I really need to figure out how to get into this oil space. Uh, thinking about it as like a as a as a payoff. like very frankly, it seemed very lucrative. Then, basically, my first you know six months working, I started working in the industry at Scotia Bank in twenty fourteen. <laughs> And then literally by the end of that year, the entire narrative shifted in the market. And I think for most of the people now, like Gen Z, they've only known, they've only really known kind of bearish market sentiment around oil. Not to Mm -hmm. mention, and that's beyond like that's beyond like that's just the market, beyond the kind of obvious kind of political and environmental concerns with the oil industry. Like, no one wants to get in this space. There's this obvious challenge with labor and expertise um, that is is made more difficult by the fact that the the future doesn't look at all secure or certain. It actually looks volatile and un- and uncertain. That is for me, someone that has a decade plus of experience now. It's kind of exciting because I think there's lots of stuff to talk about. But if you're coming in, one, overwhelming as heck. Two, are you really going to plan your entire career around maybe like a, a like a solid decade run? Like it's like you know that could be that could be a different kind of calculation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's you all all of these things like greatly influence and impact the supply side which i think is kind of the most important thing um i'm i, I just finished and you know i i feel so late to the party in 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 reading these books um you know but i'm going to say it anyways but i just finished competition demystified by bruce greenwald and then the capital cycle um or yeah capital returns or something basically you know that popular book based on the capital cycle and um you know it's it's just everything that's happening in the oil space right now is affecting supply. But what's fascinating is you mentioned, you know, hey, as we transition to these you know clean renewable energy sources, prices for these other you know energy forms are just going to slowly trough off and then and then and then die. There is an example that Greenwald used in the book about these two chemical companies um that uh you know basically the two Im- you know they 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 supplied raw materials to make different chemicals that went into um you know different things like gasoline and you yep. know to help to help to help refine gasoline basically the government created i think like this re- this uh regulation that said hey you know like we're going to ban these over time and you know we're going to start kind of phasing these out and intuitively what you would think is like oh these companies are done like these like they're 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 going to go broke but what happened is all supply exited the market and then you had kind of these two larger competitors that just basically said okay like this is what we have and why don't we cooperate on price and just mint money up until the very end and they did that and these companies in dying industries generated like north of 20 to 30% ebit margins tons of free cash flow bought back stock and like, you know, their shareholders were well rewarded in an industry that everyone knew was dying. And so it's just like this, it's this, it's this, you know, something that you have to keep in mind when you've just spent the last two years. And, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to myself, you spent the last two years obsessing over big markets, fast revenue growth, um, you know, growing at all costs, trying to find, you know, markets with big TAMs. And, you know, there's, there's many ways to kind of skin the cat here.
1: No, and totally. And I think to the point, and we can we can talk extensively about demand as well. Cause I think I think one of the mistakes that that people in this sector often make is over-focusing on supply. Cause I do think like it is the sexy part, right? People like to talk about rigs and they like to talk about oil production, and they like to talk about tankers and all this other stuff. And like that's what's really cool about the sector. We haven't even talked about tankers yet. But I think, you know, the biggest thing that's changed in my time since I started is when I started, peak oil meant peak supply. Now peak oil means peak demand and i think that is a fascinating change is and i think you know the classic um the classic you know uh quote in this in this area is like uh, one of the old saudi oil ministers said you know the stone age did not end for lack of stones <laughs> and i think I the love idea that
0: quote it's
1: a great <laughs> quote and that's why it is it, it, uh, it, his name was uh, yamani and you know the um the reason I, I think everyone repeats it so much is like it's a great quote and i think the idea here is like we are not the oil age is not going to end because we physically run out of oil and like prices go to 500 a thousand dollars a barrel it. that's not how the oil market's going to end the oil market's going to end because gradually we find other ways less emitting ways to you know power locomotion globally like now right now that everyone thinks that's going to be electricity of some variety and i think that that is this next stage is gradually moving away from oil but i think the challenge here as well is that like Oil is used in so many different ways right. um, across so many different industries. And it is, you know, the reason it's used so much is the utility is massive. It's like a liquid shelf stable battery uh, that has huge energy density. And the only downside really is the fact that it emits a lot of, you know, CO2 and the production produces a lot of methane. Um, and I think these are problems. And, and we recognize that from like an, like an, like an externality perspective. But it is really hard on a case by case basis to like overcome the massive, massive utility of oil.
0: Yeah. Well, and that that also brings up another point where if we like step back and put yourself in your shoes when you kind of first started into this space, and if you want to become a master, yep, at knowing this, um, and you could only choose, let's say, two to three factors or metrics to gauge. The health of the space, whether you know that's the supply and demand balance, inventory balance. Like, what two to three metrics do you choose, and then how do you track them and follow them, and and then make judgments based off of you know the changes in each of those metrics?
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to differentiate here between kind of like a broader kind of like thematic things that you should focus on from the beginning, and I think yep. later we can actually talk about like specific data. That yeah, we can perfect. Through a week, you know, week to week and month to month. So I think you know the number one thing to understand in this space is supply and demand. You know, understand. Where the supply and demand growth is going globally, Um, you know, are we in the are we in a period of chronic undersupply? And I think you know there are a variety of estimates out there of supply and demand. Um, At the same time, you know, the best way in many ways to kind of understand this very granularly is inventories. So like watching inventories, and if inventories are falling really, really quickly, you're pretty you've got a pretty good bet that you know you know markets are undersupplied. The second thing to focus on is the futures curve, and I think the futures curve here again historically this wasn't. Wasn't as big a deal, but now you have a huge amount of information contained in the futures curve. Um, it obviously gives you the the spot price of so the kind of what we call like the flat price of crude, but then also the shape of the futures curve matters a lot. And I think I think it, you know based on what we had chatted earlier, I think we're going to talk more extensively about the futures curve a little bit later in the podcast. Uh, but I think that is something to understand, and like the shape of the futures curve in many cases matters more for the outlook of the industry or the or the kind of current status of the industry than the flat price itself. And I think that's another thing. So we can talk about like you know, um, whether or not just the shape of the curve visibly, or you talk about calendar spreads and this idea of like, you know, are you in backwardation or contango? And then finally, the, the, the thing that I think that people need to understand is the policy and politics in this space is hugely important, whether or not that is looking at, you know, the late, you know, in this latest round, I mean, this, you know, past year has been one of the most policy active years in the market. and I think this is in a market that everyone already considers to be one of the most political and policy driven in the world. But last year, you had you know, literal war and peace policy driving massive shifts in expectations of Russian supply. You had the US um, administration, the Biden administration and the White House embarking on the largest SPR release in the history of of the market that mm-hmm. materially changed balances. I mean, again, people talk about how like, you know, uh, 180 million barrels or like at, at the peak, it was about a million, million and a half barrels a day of of supply from the SPR. People are like, ah, oh, that's nothing. Uh, you know, it's, you know, the market's 100 million barrels, you know, that's gonna, you know, it's it's like a tiny amount. But it's important to remember for people that like, the market always clears on the margin. So when you're talking about like an, an extra million, million and a half barrels, that's like adding another OPEC member briefly, temporarily to the market. Mm. And that would absolutely push you from, let's say, mild undersupply to material oversupply. I think that that actually, lar- you know, goes a, lar- a long way to explaining why fundamentally the market went from 120 down to 75. Um, and I think like the SPR was a material component of that. So whether it's US policy or Russia or OPEC understanding how you know Saudi and, and its allies kind of you know view acceptable pricing because obviously OPEC policy intermittently comes in and kind of takes a sledgehammer to the market, what you know, one way or the other. So I think understanding all those things and kind of having a bit of a framework for how you because I think this other thing, it's important to have a framework for how to blend those things together. Exactly. You know, this is a market that has so many disparate kind of signals. And I think the art is in kind of figuring out how you interpret them between each other. Because I think each of them provides a partial view of this market. And I think, again, a mistake you will make is overfixating on any one thing and kind of ignoring
0: contrary uh, data and evidence. So that begs the question, like, what model do you use? And then maybe how is that model? of how you view these interconnecting parts? How has that changed since you started in the space?
1: Yeah, so I think like, um, and actually, I think this is actually a good moment we can talk about some of the actual specific data points. So like, um, so for supply and demand, uh, there's three big organizations that publish kind of regular supply demand estimates globally. Now, uh, the first I think is the what many consider like the industry kind of standard is the International Energy Agency or the IEA publishes its oil market report every month. That said, it is a paid report, so it's not free. You can get historical uh, copies of it, but they are lagged. And for that reason, I actually think it's probably not the best place for people to start with. I think it's useful, to like, read back reports. I think there's a lot of really, really good data there. But I think it's like if you want a more current view and you don't have the kind of couple thousand dollars it costs for a subscription, then you, you can honestly, I think, leave that one off. Um, right. yeah. the, other, the other ones that are free, so OPEC produces its own annu- uh, monthly report called the Monthly Oil Market Report, or the MOMER. Um, so there's the OMER, the MOMER, and then the STEO. And then that the STEO is, is the EIA's short-term energy outlook. And both the OPEX MOMER and the and EIA's STEO are both free resources. And particularly for anyone that is data savvy, the EIA has a really, really, and this is the Energy Information Administration part of the U.S. Uh, Department of Energy. Has, a re- has like a really, really great API and they have really, really great data. So you can actually see, like you that you can see a global demand balance. You can, now all of these agencies differ slightly in how they view both the future and the current. And I think that's important is that there, for people to understand that like, there is no real truth <laughs> in the <laughs> market. There is, there are a variety of estimates. Yeah. And I think good analysts take all these estimates into consideration and figure, OK, what makes sense with the pricing that we're seeing? Like, if if someone, if someone someone's saying a market is, like I think what's very frequent in this market is people were saying, you know, what, the data I'm looking at says that the market is deeply in deficit, but the oil price just fell by half. I would probably say the market's probably not deeply in deficit. <laughs> I think, <laughs> right? I think the other challenge is like all of this stuff is generally backward looking. Um, So, you know, you've got historicals which don't always agree with each other. So first you can harmonize and figure out what you believe historically, where Mm -hmm. we actually did stand, then where we stand right now, it's like a now cast, and then a forecast. And I think each of those pieces takes a lot of kind of work and effort to kind of iron out a view, again, that it will never be perfect, but you want something that is at least internally consistent with what you are seeing in market pricing and market-based signals because mm-hmm, at the end yeah. of the day, frankly, that's all that really matters. Uh, we're really talking about where our oil price is going now and in the future. Uh, and I think many times people will, people will obsess about the forecast without trying to actually get themselves on firmer footing for where we're standing today. Um, and I think that's a, that's a big mistake that I think people that are entering the sector now I think should have a better appreciation for because I think it gives you a lot of information because you know actuals and the way we have been i think are much more certain than where we're going in two months let alone two years
0: mm-hmm. and the way i'm kind of picturing this in my head is you've got basically like this decision tree and there's kind of these inputs into the model and really what's important is determining what you know percentage to put more emphasis on like with each specific part so like you know when you you you've got demand supply You've got inventories. You've got the futures curve, and it's like at different points in time, one of those things matters more than the other, and then it's trying to determine which one of those things matters and correctly adjusting, you know, that uh, that 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 relative importance to that I mean, one exactly, simple yeah. metric versus the rest.
1: Exactly, and I think there's also like even if you let's say we can just let's ju- let's just say we kind of go with um, supply demand, you know, estimates inventory and then pricing or yep. like future curve. That is also like each of those has different levels of like fidelity or assumed accuracy out the gate. Like the least certain is supply and demand because those are very much global estimates. And let me tell you about all of the different ways that I know my own numbers could be wrong. Cause we're talking about every country on the planet uh, which is, it's hard to get all of that right. So we know that there's going to be some errors there and corrections historically, it always, always happens. Inventories are more certain because you're actually, you know, surveying you know people in the market to say, like, how much do you have in your tanks? Now, the challenge with inventories is that there's a differentiated kind of level of certainty as you go across the across the globe. US inventories, great data. You know, the weekly petroleum status report from the EIA is another thing that all kind of investors and kind of analysts in this space should watch. And every Wednesday at about 10.30, you have a um, a report that's released by the EIA that gives you kind of weekly data on this space. Now, the inventory data is really, really good. Um, and, histo- and generally, when you get monthly updates, it's more or less just a, you know, a monthly restatement of that inventory data. The hard part is that if you look at globally, inventory data comes out much less frequently, if at all. I and mean, when you look at like one of the major themes of this past year has been massive stock building in China. But we don't generally have great public accessible data about China. So generally, a lot of investors ignore that because they look at you know, a lot of what people focus on is um, visible commercial OECD inventory data. That's what's reported by these agencies. Um, but if you have stock building that's going on elsewhere in the world, that's going to look kind of weird and orthogonal to your, let's, let's say you know I, my own numbers, you actually see you know, gr- you know, mild surpluses in global supply-demand balances for most of the second half of last year. Which a lot of people are like. That's crazy, you know. We've seen inventory draws and the SPR drew down and everything else. But like, if you're just looking at one segment of the war- at the market, it does look weird. But if you look at other segments of the market where inventories are, you know, estimated to be building, and this is based on more proprietary data. People, you know, have satellite, you know, views of tank farms. They try and interpret. Um, but like we generally know that inventories have been building in China, both crude and products. Um, and then finally, so like you've got like you know, uh, supply and demand estimates, which are kind of loosey-goosey and kind of, again, an art form in many ways. (laughs) Then you've got, you know, uh, inventories, which are more certain, but but patchy around the world. And if you only have a patchy view, they don't provide a great confirmation one way or the other of the market. And finally, you have pricing, which at the end of the day is how all of this stuff clears. So if if you are in deep kind of oversupply, the market flips into contango and kind of incentivizes stock building. And if you're deeply deficit, you know the market flips into backwardation and kind of incentivizes those inventories to draw down. So I think good analysts try and figure out how that narrative makes sense across those those pieces. Um, and there are other things we can talk about, particularly data and stuff. Um, but I think the other, like, like another thing that you can watch is um, I watch a lot of the what's called the commitment commitments of traders report, yep. which uh, CFTC and then ICE uh, publishes both for kind of uh, U.S. WTI and then Brent, and this gives me a view of and I look at specifically the managed money component of the disaggregated data, um, and this gives you a sense of where speculators or what I view as the marginal kind of buyers of crude futures and options contracts are in the market, and I think you can adjust your view slightly for that as well. Because I think a lot of people, and when I this is one thing that I learned when I first joined the industry completely backwards, which is I learned initially hedge funds, managed money, they're, they're the smart money. You know, you should probably go where they're going. And now I view it as more of a contra indicator. That that's, it, it, now it's kind of like a crowded trade kind of yeah. estimate, right? That when, as a proportion and relative to history, spec participants are really long on a yeah. net basis, the more likely scenario that they mean revert. Either they trim long positions, they establish new shorts or whatever. So I see it as like when we're really, really net short, I see that as bullish because there's a lot of dry powder that is historically moved with with oil, comes back in and goes up. So I think also your interpretation of even pricing signals, which are normally the most solid estimate you have of what the market stands, also needs to be moderated and kind of contextualized with where you know speculators are in the market. So I think it's, again, each one of these things is viewed best in the context of all the other things. And I think it's only when you have all these pieces together that things start to make some sense. Or very frankly, sometimes they don't make sense. I think that's also <laughs> another story. Like I think that's an important conclusion. Like, wow, none of this stuff is actually lining up. Like, uh, like, something is going to move one way or the other to like reestablish harmony between all of these data points. Uh, but it, you you don't always know which way it's going to go
0: if you had and this is the, the this is kind of following this line of thought about you know starting from scratch trying to master this space again if you had to start from scratch with zero knowledge right so take all the info you have now throw it out the window how would you go about leveling up and getting to where you are now like what 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 books would you read were there would you read like annual reports of whether it's EMPs, offshore, you know, um, you know, uh, services, energy equipment, drilling companies onshore. like how would you go about getting to where you are now?
1: Yeah. So if we're talking about like, you know, what I would read at the gate, I think there's a lot of good books. We talked about, I think everyone should start with the prize because I think it's a great kind of introduction. It's a massive, I think it's like 800 pages or something like that. It's It's a very, very large book, (laughs) but it is, but it is, it's a massive historical sector as well. There are a bunch of other great books I've got, you know, um, there's a book called uh, "The King of Oil," which is a biography yeah. of Mark Rich. Uh, which kind of, and for people that are unfamiliar, like Mark Rich and Co. was one of like the major first, you know, was like the major first oil trader. Um, essentially, in many cases, established the spot market in crude in the '70s uh, and into yeah. the '80s. And his company eventually broke up because of politics and internal disagreements, and actually formed Glencore and Trafigura. So, like, oh the- no Chim- way yeah so like the, the the companies that remain some of the largest in the world are the are like the direct descendants of mark mark rich and co which brings you to the other book which is um there's a really great book by journalists at bloomberg uh, javier blas and jack farley which is the world for sale uh which is it's a more it's it also covers kind of um mark rich history but is a bit more broad and it kind of brings you a bit more modern and current so like these like you know the modern incarnations et cetera et cetera and also covers more than just oil it covers grains and kind of like the ABCs of like the the grain trade and everything else as well so that's really interesting I think also you've got books on like there's a book called Oil 101 which is just a great kind of primer uh, I think it's Morgan Downey uh, great primer on all some of the technical aspects of the market uh, you also have I had mentioned Crude Volatility by Bob McNally which is another another kind of a great book that just gives you a broader history. So I think history is important here. I think that like anyone that assumes that this market moves in one direction needs to read more history because we have been here time and time and time and time again and people are always so confident that this is the time that oil is going to 200 or this is the time that you know that peak oil has happened and that it's just a runaway profit train or whatever. And every single time something goes wrong. Now, you know, past is not always prologue. Maybe this time is actually different. But like yeah, every time someone says this time is actually different, You know, alarm bells should go off and say, like, is it? (laughs) There's also a really good book recently. uh, It was actually one of the FT Book of the Year kind of finalists called Dead in the Water. And it's a really interesting book about an oil tanker that had been hijacked. And it was this kind of like murder story. But it provided this really interesting background on the tanker market. Uh, and how how you know the the insurance market works and, and the reinsurance market works in, in Lloyds of London, and how intimately this industry is connected there as well. And particularly what we're seeing right now is a lot more interest in tanker tracking. Um, this is a, something that people are, are doing a lot more work of. You've got a lot of really great companies that emerged in the past couple of years to do this kind of work. And there's a lot of interest in it because of sanctions and tracking in a very high frequency way what's coming out of Russian ports and where is it going? What's coming out of Iranian and Venezuelan ports? Where are they hiding their oil? You yeah. know, this, and you can see this in real time, which is fascinating because, you know, while it's all very murky at the same time, it's really hard to hide a tanker that's holding 2 million barrels of crude. <laughs> that's a very large item and it's visible from space. Yeah. Um, so, but beyond, beyond books, I think like, and this is, you know, stuff that's much more free, freely accessible to most investors. Like read a tre- I read a tremendous amount of the Financial Times Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, you've got really really great seasoned uh, journalists in this space that have seen, you know, many of them have been in this in this sector for decades and they have seen it all before and they I are very very good at kind of like calling bullshit on what some of the more, you know, outrageous claims are. Uh, and I think that's a really really valuable thing. And then beyond uh, you know, uh, FT, Wall Street Journal and, oh, and and I forgot Reuters, which is always one of the best sources in this space generally. You also have more industry-specific publications like Argus uh, and S and P Commodity Insights, which was formerly known as Platts. Um, also, really, really great sources. You also have like companies like there's a tanker tracking uh, company called Vortexa that that uh, publishes uh, kind of you know regular insights or blog posts. Also, really, really great. I think there's a lot of great content out right there. Um, the other thing I would say is like just play with the data. Like go to the EIA's website. Go go to go to the STI, uh, the short-term energy outlook. It's got a great data browser and just start downloading data and playing with it. I think it gives you a really great like I think everyone that really wants to do this industry seriously should try building a global supply and demand model. It doesn't need to be perfect, but just to give you a rough proportional sense yeah. of what matters in the industry and where things are going. Nothing no read no, not reading anything, very frankly, is going to give you the same appreciation as playing with the data in a spreadsheet. And then finally just a, an entire hugely self-serving self-plug subscribe to commodity context where I'm I'm continuing to learn this sector daily. And I think my method is very much trying to like publish kind of an annotated journal of my exploration, digging deeper and deeper into different elements of the sector. But I think there's a, there's a huge amount of great content out there. And I think that if you really want to, you can find fantastic, fantastic stuff.
0: What are you digging into now at commodity context that has you super interested? It could be a recent development. It could be something that you think, in terms of forecasting might happen, like what is occupying most of your time now?
1: Yeah, so the two pieces I'm that are next on my docket um, are a piece on the global air travel recovery. Uh, so jet fuel, particularly in China, is this major question like, is China reopening? How can we track that in higher frequency basis? I was mentioning before that a lot of the supply demand data is very lag typically like so i publish a monthly report that i have called the global oil data deck it provide it's like a you know 50 plus page document that provides updated charts um of all of the thematic work that i've done historically but as an example so the, i just published the january report and that the focus month of that report is november and it's always kind of going back and trying to reconstruct the best data we have for the most recent month we have good data available and i think that is one of i think that is is something that um kind of is just a good thing to know in the sector. Whereas with some of the more recent, you know, flight tracking data, you can get an actual, almost a real time, um, you know, um, estimate of where, you know, jet fuel demand is going by looking at the number of planes that are taking off across different countries. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that's something that I'm really looking forward to kind of parsing out and providing a bit more context if you will uh for and then finally uh, you know the other thing I'm looking at is so I wrote a piece recently on on Guyana uh, one of the major kind of sources of, of growth going forward. Uh, another country that's doing a very similar offshore and big expected gains on the supply side is Brazil I think another country I'll be digging into yeah, I do these deep dives every once in a while into like a particular country or a particular sector of the, of the of the space. so the next two things I'm going to be doing on that thematic basis are going to be you know air traffic and, and jet fuel and then Brazil. Uh, but going forward, I'm like, I am looking at you know doing more on the equity side. Again, I'm not an equity analyst by background, so my my focus won't be taking the macro and applying it to like an equity call or a price valuation or whatever a price target. My my view is more like taking a broader aggregate swath of let's say Canadian or U.S. based ENPs and how their you know how their balance sheets are changing, what that tells mm-hmm. us about the broader sector, how their cost base is changing, and how that tells us about where things are going to be going. Uh, but those are kind of some of the big things that I'm looking at going forward. And then every week on Friday, I've also got uh, a, a regular report I do called Oil Context Weekly, which I just, you know, beyond this thematic deep diving stuff, there's also all the stuff that's going on literally week to week to week right now because things are so volatile. So I think you've got like the beginning of this week, we started by finally the, the entirety of the futures curve uh, for Brent flipped into backwardation. And then yesterday or the day before it collapsed back down to contango. So you are like, you know, this, it's constantly shifting. You're like, ah, it's happened. Ah, okay. It's gone. <laughs>
0: yeah. When you look at a country like Brazil and you say, okay, I'm going to go do a deep dive on Brazil. Like, what does that process look like? Like, How do you start research? Or, you know, maybe, maybe I haven't even thought about it yet. No. So, I
1: mean, I have, and it's, and it's, it's, each of these countries is different. Uh, They have different levels of transparency. One of the challenges with Brazil is it, Exclusively publishes its data in like Portuguese, yeah. <laughs> which is so I've I've learned very quickly. Like and like you know I do a lot of work with like trying to scrape through OPEC and OPEC Plus members uh, for like again because you're looking for you know unbiased or kind of you know primary source data. Both because one I can then use it freely and you know sell the data at one point. Um, but beyond that, I think it gives you like, otherwise everyone has their estimates, but you never, it's all a black box. You don't know how they come up with the estimates, So I like to know where I'm getting my data from. Uh, and quite frankly, like a lot of this, like, like Kazakhstan's data, I was recently doing a bunch of work on and like, you, I have to like literally translate Excel sheets that are written exclusively in Kazakh, <laughs> and, like to try and get this data out and then parse it into something that's useful. Right. Um, so in, so in Brazil, there's a, you know, their main oil and gas regulator is called the ANP. Uh, so you go through A and P website and figure out what data they publish, what data they collect, and and A and P is actually really great. They they actually get a lot of really really good data. That said, they do not make it at all easy to access and download. So it's a little bit like one figure out a bit of a a bit of a like a mind map of what data they collect and what data is useful. So like very 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 you know uh, high level, but like you're breaking down like by province or region within within Brazil, you're looking at you can actually break it down to like the individual project level in many cases, figuring out where like this one particular offshore platform is going, you know, are is one region falling and one region kind of going up. Yeah. And, I, and I, my main focus always a commodity context is decomposition. I think so frequently people will just say Brazilian production is here, you know, 4 million barrels a day or whatever. But I want to know like what segment of that is growing? What segment is shrinking? Because I think that only knowing that, and again, this goes back to this historical kind of context, only knowing where we're standing now, will you have a better sense of where uh, of where you're going in the future? Because the, the headline number could be flat, yep. but you could have a legacy area of growth. Like, actually, a great example of this is, is Mexico, where you have the major legacy uh, fields that have supported Mexican production for decades have been in chronic decline and you see all of these other segments trying to pick it up but like it's so you have like one section declining and one section growing um but like it kind of looks much more stable on the headline level uh but it's important to kind of know what's going where because eventually like the declines will stop or the growth yeah. will stop and you can kind of see where it and at which point
0: that's fascinating and i just think i've learned so much from this like hour and a half that uh, I'm, I'm buying those books that you recommended today for sure. Fantastic. Yeah. So, and, uh, and, you know, hopefully I could do a deep dive and kind of some book reviews on, on, on all those as I go. But um we're, you know, we're coming up on, on, on the hour and a half mark. And I know, I know you've got another, um, You've got another commitment around 9.30. So there's a couple closing questions that I ask everybody. And the first one is, where can people go to find out more about you? I know we connected on Twitter. So, you know, shout out your Twitter account and your website.
1: Yeah. So on Twitter, which I spend way too much time on, and I kind of live, live journal my research process in real time, um, as well as share photos of my adorable uh, children. Uh, I think the... Uh, so I'm on Twitter at Rory underscore Johnston. Uh, and then most of my work is now being channeled through my uh, my research product at, com- at commoditycontext.com on Substack. Um, and I, I kind of have three verticals that I view with that product. I have my thematic research, which we've been talking about. I usually try and publish twice a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, either you know one Friday weekly report, so the oil context weekly reports, and then one other piece. And I, it's either a thematic piece or I also have two monthly data reports, the global oil data deck and the North American oil data deck, that kind of dig down and all of the stuff I'm talking about week to you know, in those thematic reports or week to week, they all get aggregated into those data reports, because I find one of the things that I find in a lot of sectors and particularly in the oil sector is that people will like do a deep dive thematic. And then it will become stale and you have no idea where those pieces went, I would like love to see an update of that chart or whatever. So my goal is to automate all of this so that I can actually update it and keep it updated so that people can kind of go back and see, oh, okay, that went here. And, oh, well, you know, that that was right or that was wrong or whatever else.
0: Yeah. Last question I have, which I ask every guest, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why?
1: So I think, you know, I've got a professional answer and I've got a personal answer here. Ooh, yeah. uh, I think, like, I think professionally, I think it would be fascinating to talk with some of the people, like some of, like, the legacy and, you know, the legacy figures in this market. Someone like a Mark Rich who by all intents and purposes, didn't always seem like the best person, but I think it'd be fascinating to talk to, uh, particularly yeah. if it's in this kind of like, you know, imaginary kind of dinner or drinks environment. On a personal level, I would just love to sit down and have a beer with Seth Rogen. I think I just, <laughs> I, it, a, a little bit of a personal, a bit of a personal crush. I think that would just be a fantastic and chill environment. And I and I think I would really enjoy that.
0: Did you ever watch his movie about like the pickle company or whatever? Yes.
1: We're, I we're, thought... we're yeah, he I thought him that was Denver. very good.
0: I thought that was very good.
1: It was so clever. And I think that it is just it, it's one of these things. I don't think like it virtually no one's heard of it. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, honestly, but I think it was very clever and it's cute. And I think he's just such a wholesome guy and he's Canadian at the end of the day. So
0: <laughs> my wife and I were on a plane, a plane ride back from somewhere and she was scrolling through like the movies on Southwest and that popped up and I'm like what the heck is that and I thought it was just like some gag movie and I'm like all right let's see if we can get through like 2 minutes of it and uh I got invested put my book down watched the whole <laughs> thing start to finish, start to finish and yeah I have I I have no complaints it was it was a fantastic film
1: fantastic <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Roy, this has been awesome. Let's do this again um, after you've got, uh, you know, maybe we'll come back when you're diving into Canadian ENPs and doing a big yeah. deep dive on those. We'll come back and and do a whole nother podcast on, on, on what you found and kind of any insights you got there. But uh, best of luck the rest of this year. I'm sure it's not going to be volatile.
1: Oh, exactly. It's going to be, yeah, steady sailing, absolutely no curveballs. You know, as we said, oil, very, very boring.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at Ticker.com forward slash hive. That's tikr dot com forward slash hive.